I think the best analogy is that Spacelift is to infrastructure's code is what GitHub is to Git. It's the missing layer of collaboration that includes CI and CD as well. So it is what runs your infrastructure's code. It is what deploys your infrastructure's code, being Terraform, CloudFormation, Pulumi, Ansible, etc. But it is also what tracks the progress, what gives you the insight into what are you working on as a team, who did what, and the, the ability to understand where things are coming from. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. Ryan Donovan, my venerable co-host, is with us today. Ryan, how are you feeling? Oh, uh, decent enough. So we have a great episode today. It is a sponsored episode from the fine folks at Spacelift. And we are going to be talking with Marcin, who is the founder and CEO. So Marcin, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. We always try to start these guest episodes just learning about how you got into software and technology, even from a young age, and then a little bit about the journey that took you from you know, that to where you are now. All right. So my name is Martin Wyszynski, CEO and co-founder of Spacelift. I'm originally from Poland, from Europe. I started my journey with computers at a gentle age of eight when I got my first C64. Oh, got one of those too. <laughs> right. Back then in Poland, getting games was was challenging. We had those games on cassettes from God knows where. People were just recording and copying those cassettes. But getting new games was was difficult. So once I played all the games I could put my hands on, I started basically getting a bit bored. And since there was no alternative, like PCs were not a thing back in the day in Poland, I just you know started learning programming so I could write my own games or, or create my own games. They're not very interesting at that point, but you know it's better than nothing and it's, yeah. it's better than getting bored. Do you remember any of the games you created for yourself? Do they still extant? Do they exist? Oh, they don't exist. Uh, they're mostly like uh, role-playing text games. We had those like role-playing books that, that yeah. were available in shops. So I basically took that idea and ran with it with my nine-year-old, ten-year-old mind, obviously. They'd right. be probably very embarrassing. So thankfully, we don't <laughs> have any. Like I don't think we even have a tape player that could play the, the cassettes. So cassettes might be somewhere around. Yeah. You know, I've been playing with computers throughout my, my teenage years, but I never thought about it as, as my career. So when it was time to start thinking about what I want to do in life, when I graduated high school, I had no idea. So I did what most people did, and I started studying sociology. That's what a lot of my friends did. I had no idea why, but I did. Yeah. In the meantime, I was building websites, but I never thought of computing as my my career path. So when I started doing statistics, like I, when I started doing sociology, I fell in love with statistics. And statistics is obviously very heavy into, into programming. So, so starting with like dedicated software for statistics, but then going to languages like R. It's spreadsheets all the way down. I mean, spreadsheets <laughs> is all you need. Well, spreadsheets and then the data and formulas. So yeah. I basically kind of connected the dots. Okay, that's computers, that's algorithms, that's you know the data, and it kind of clicked uh, with me. I got my first job at, at Google 
when I graduated, that was not a technical job. That was actually reviewing ads for AdWords, like the little things. Got your foot in the door. Well, I didn't hold that job for very long because I wrote software that automated myself out of the job. So I was transferred to a more technical job, basically building tools for people like myself. And from that, I knew that I had a lot of gaps in my education. And I basically took up another course in software engineering this time in, in National College of Ireland. So I graduated uh, with that as well. In the meantime, I had different jobs at Google, increasingly technical, until I finally landed at SRE. It's a site reliability engineering team. Probably Google was one of the inventors of the DevOps movement, and SRE is like a, is one of the, the glorified DevOps jobs. So that was my... <laughs> Careful <yeah>. now. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because you have a beautiful, I thought, sort of Irish tinge to your accent. So now it all makes sense. It's all over the place, but there's some Ireland in it for sure. What did you work on at Google? Any projects that you think listeners would find interesting? Oh, so I mostly, on in SRE, I mostly worked on a project called GTape. I think it's, it's called differently now, but it's generally backup and restore system that depends on tapes, LTO tapes. We have a whole the tapes again. sponsored episode coming up about backing up your, your GitHub repos, right, Ryan? Mm-hmm. It's an age-old technology, but very reliable. And the bandwidth or the storage that you get from tapes is, is unparalleled. My focus, obviously, as an SRE, you end up doing everything, in a sense, like you support the system, the thing with with tapes and with backups is that the job is very boring until it's extremely exciting. So it's nothing for <laughs> long periods of time. Right. But when you're needed, that means that you're the last best hope for the person who calls you to help. Because that means that everything else failed. You're the last plan that they had. Right. Sort of a firefighter. It, essentially, right? It's like the the last bullet that you have. And so, so it gets stressful. But in the meantime, there's a lot of work going around, around processes, around humans involved in those processes, because you can, you can imagine those tape libraries being like giant machines served by multiple humans. You know, those tapes get recorded, then some of them get shipped to an offsite location for, for storage and for security reasons. And there's a lot of humans and processes involved in my particular focus on the team was making sure that that processes were all well organized, that humans knew what they were doing, and that they were very efficient at, at it, and building the software that empowered them to be efficient, that minimized uh, the room for error, and mm-hmm. made sure that if you're bringing in a crate with tapes from an external location, that is the right crate, and that it, it has the data on it. That was my main focus on the team. So there's obviously, it sounds like a you know storage or especially backups and restores. That's like the back end of a back end of a back end. <laughs> but there's a lot. Right. Surprisingly, there's a lot of front end and user experience in it. So I was probably the only person on my team with like JavaScript readability because there was a lot of JavaScript and, and human interaction involved. That was my job at Google. Yeah, I know we want to get to what you're doing now, but as we're doing this 10,000 foot flyover, from there, you went on to Facebook. Can you tell us a little about what you're working on there? At Facebook, I joined a, a team called Cluster Ops. 
And the cluster ops team was the one that was building software for clusters and for pops, very low level software, making sure that we can spin up a, a new cluster very efficiently or spin up a pop. For folks who don't know, what's a, can you just, what's a pop? Point of presence. So it's like a little ambassador of, uh, of Facebook in, in mm-hmm. a location where we don't have a nearby data center. So right. like you, you would connect to your, to your nearest instance of facebook maybe like a, to keep latency exactly yeah those those around the time where the smartphones became very popular so they they used to be popular in america then they used to be popular in europe but around around the time that i joined facebook they started being popular around the world and obviously the first thing that you do when you have a smartphone is you log into facebook right that's <laughs> the very first thing that especially you do. if you buy one of those facebook phones yeah <laughs> that they put out around the globe they were not a thing back then as far as i yeah. can remember oh, what year what year did you join uh 2014 got it so that that was interesting in the meantime my kid was born um so we moved back to my my home country of poland because it takes a village to raise a kid and for for two years i've been trying startup. I joined as a CTO of a software house and we were also building an internal product called CodeBeat. So that was like a, it is still static code analysis for multiple languages. Mm. It was an interesting time, but the product didn't take off in a way that I hoped for. So after two years of not seeing it take off, I moved back to the cloud, but this Mm. time from building the cloud to building on the cloud. So for for a couple of years later, I was a consultant helping people with the cloud. And that work as a consultant, I mean, obviously the work at Google and at Facebook, but the work as a consultant, you kind of saw some pain points repeated that led you to create your current company, right? Can you walk us through that? That is correct. Yes. So as a consultant, you have like a, a toolbox full of, you know, best practices, open source tools, processes, but also little scripts and little tooling that you bring to to the company that needs it. And so, you know, I had that, obviously. I was also building bespoke pieces of technology for every one of my clients. But one thing that was very common was the need to manage infrastructure as code. So infrastructure as code is basically this new practice that allows people to write their infrastructure in like a declarative way almost mm. like you would write a website. So instead of like having either clicking on on the GUI or creating like a bash script to set up like your infrastructure for a project, you'd declare it. And so you'd feed it to some software that would work as a, as a browser does for HTML, right? And that was like a breakthrough in my thinking about, about infrastructure, especially that at Facebook, we had a similar product to Terraform, Terraform and open source product. And I understood how much thoughts and how much work it took to build such a thing. So seeing products like Terraform or even CloudFormation from AWS was an eye-opener for me. It's like the first time I used Git, it was like, oh my God. <laughs> so much my easier. life will never be the same. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's such an eye-opener. How could I not use it? Mm-hmm. And right. that's my reaction with, with infrastructure as code as well. But I also noticed the same problem that I saw with Git. Like Git is amazing, is an amazing piece of technology, but collaborating in Git is not that easy. Yes, there's a beauty of in being decentralized and sending each one another uh, a patch. But essentially what Git evolved into is that centralized model where you'd have GitHub. So imagine not having GitHub 
and working with Git as a team. Yes, it was designed this way, but it would be very difficult to work out in practice. And that's the thing that I've seen with, especially with Terraform, Mm -hmm. that having this layer of collaboration missing was very painful for the client teams that I worked with. So it it sounds like there's been a a bunch of times from, you know, when you started where you basically built the thing that you needed. Correct. And I've built a lot of things that I needed, but with Spacelift or with, with the idea behind Spacelift, there was that consistent feedback where for every client that I worked for, they needed to solve this problem in one way or another, or they've, they've tried to solve this problem in one way or another. And that thing that they built maybe was not working, maybe wasn't scaling, or maybe they were they were okay with that, but they didn't see the potential that what they could have if they solved this problem in, in a more generic, more elegant fashion. And the other thing that I've noticed is that people who worked for companies where I implemented my tooling were changing jobs. And in their new job, one of the first things that they did was reach out to me and ask me, hey, can I have the same? <laughs> the question was almost always about this particular tool. So tell us, yeah, I guess a little bit like if you had to step back and explain to someone, how does this work and, and you know, why do you want it? What would you say? I think the best analogy is that Spacelift is to infrastructure as code is what GitHub is to Git. It's the missing layer of collaboration that includes CI and CD as well. So it is what runs your infrastructure as code. It is what deploys your infrastructure as code, being Terraform, CloudFormation, Pulumi, Ansible, etc. But it is also what tracks the progress, what gives you the insight into what are you working on as a team, who did what, and the, the ability to understand where things are coming from. Have you ever heard the uh, extremely businessy phrase, value stream management? Ryan yes, and I did a whole correct. episode, but you know, it's basically like the big boss has an idea, then it gets handed to the manager, then it gets handed to the IC. Everybody's working, different teams, back end, front end, DevOps. And then how can you see mm-hmm. where you're stuck or how can you see how fast things are moving or how can you see when it's done, you know, what kind of value is created? So that kind of transparency being so valuable, especially within an or- side of an organization that might have hundreds or thousands of engineers. But also working backwards, once you see like a a piece of infrastructure deployed and you're wondering what was the rationale behind that being deployed, you can go back to the original decision by the CTO, for example. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that, that deployment is kind of invisible, right? It just changed somewhere. Yeah, and it's it's code archaeology. Very frequently, <laughs> you'll you'll find like it's that's what the comments are for. Come on now, it's a science, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, but you can't easily comment on every piece of infrastructure that you spin up, especially that that infrastructure might be in different clouds, you know, governed by different principles, and you know, putting comments on everything. First of all, not many people think about it. Sometimes it's not very easy. Sometimes those comments don't map to architectural decisions or or the code that was written right. so it's not always that that simple of course you should be tagging everything right but it's not always easy or possible so does this work with the sort of lower level stuff like docker kubernetes so it's glorified glue it's based on docker so the executions would happen in docker and that gives people a lot of flexibility in how they want to operate we allow them to bring their docker image and we'd be working in a container that we spin from from that image, meaning that they can bring their entire development environment with that image. 
With Kubernetes, so there are two ways of looking at whether it runs on Kubernetes or, or whether it supports Kubernetes or not. Running it on Kubernetes, yes, you can run it on Kubernetes. Does it support Kubernetes? Almost. <laughs> we're, we're working towards it. So we will be having Kubernetes as one of the one of infrastructure as code. We call them backends. But you don't need it. Well, if you don't need it. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on what you do, I suppose. So walk us through like a a use case or a test case, or I guess if you can, yeah, you know, talk to us about a a customer who shared their story publicly. Like, can you give us an example of the value somebody's derived from this? So Spacelift is generally like, how should I call it, a force multiplier for teams who are building their infrastructure as a code. And these days, most of sophisticated customers would would use infrastructure as code principles, if not exclusively, then for the most of their work. There are different modes of using Spacelift, but one of the most common patterns that we've seen is for the centralized or for one DevOps team to basically use Spacelift as an enabler for other teams. So they would use Spacelift to build safe spaces for less sophisticated teams to basically automatically provision their infrastructure. The idea would be for the dedicated DevOps team to set up rules of engagement, set up policies that basically control what can be deployed under what circumstances, and maybe building modules, like those reusable building blocks for their teams to to work with. Some companies would call it archetypes, archetype would be, oh, I need an app or a microservice with a load balancer and a database, right? Or maybe someone else would need like a consumer of a Kafka topic or an SQS queue in, in AWS. And so they, they would have those like building blocks that they could give to, to the teams and they would just say, okay, you don't need us, at least right. not on a daily basis. We built you this wonderful system using this wonderful tool. Please use it. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it kind of takes the the heavy lifting of the uh, infrastructure's code and, and automates it. And also makes it makes it auditable, makes it easy as a team, so you're not stepping on each other's toes. You get regular feedback on your changes. So when you make a pull request in, in GitHub, we'll comment with feedback that, okay, well, if you implement this change, we're going to add you know five new resources. We're going to destroy two resources, and maybe your change is going to cost the company I don't know, thousand dollars a month, mm. and so like your team understands what's going on, your project manager understands what's going on, everyone understands the impact of your change right. through proposed changes on the infrastructure on the, on the company bottom line. Yeah, I think that's super important. With a lot of these big microservice architectures, it's really easy to have your cloud space kind of spin out of control and just find that you're running services that are charging you money, and you're like, why is this still running? Yeah, you'd occasionally find like a database that's costing you ten thousand dollars a month, right. and nobody yeah. can answer a very important question: <laughs> Why do we have it? And you should probably turn it off, but maybe something will break. You, know, you, right. you kind of don't yeah, know. There's like, yes, of course, there are ways of figuring it out, but it's archaeology. It's expensive in terms of manpower, and doing it for every single resource that you have is just crazy. So, Martin, we're just starting a new year. Were there features or things you added last year that you're especially proud of or, or things that you have on the roadmap that you want to hype up? Yeah, so we've added support for CloudFormation, one of the older systems from AWS, but one that is still widely used. And we believe that having Spacelift as a, as a management layer on top of CloudFormation would give a lot of people a lot of value. 
especially though we've seen people migrating things between CloudFormation, Terraform, Pulumi, etc. So being able to run CloudFormation is extremely valuable to them. We're currently working on support for Ansible and Kubernetes. Ansible support was especially very much in demand from companies with a lot of existing cloud resources, but maybe cloud resources from from a slightly older days where you'd spin up like uh, virtual machines and you'd provision those virtual machines with, you know, SSH. Um, the olden days. <laughs> not that long time ago, <laughs> yeah, but before ago. immutable infrastructure was a yeah. thing. And so we're, we're definitely going in, in that direction. On the other side, we have Kubernetes, where what we're seeing is, is a lot of traditional infrastructure is moving to Kubernetes. Like three years ago, you wouldn't think about running a database in Kubernetes because it was mostly designed for stateless architectures. But there's been massive improvements in, in the stability and the availability of the APIs to handle stateful things. And so we're seeing a lot of traditional infrastructure moving to Kubernetes, and we want people to be able to take space with them on that journey. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We have a ton of lifeboats in the queue. So thank you to Demata, Demata. How can I call a Go function from Java using the Java native interface? Awarded December 23rd, working over the holidays. Thank you, Demata. I am Ben Popper. I am the host of the podcast and also the director of content marketing here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. If you got questions, comments, concerns, things you want to share with us, Hit us up, podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you like the show, leave a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. I'm on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, please email us at pitches at stackoverflow.com. And my name is Martin Wyszynski. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Spacelift. You can find us at spacelift.io. And it's very easy to get started. You just install GitHub app on your GitHub account or organization account or a personal account. And so we automatically provision a Spacelift account for you and we open that account in front of your eyes. That is very simple. If you open a Spacelift account, if you provision a Spacelift account, you get 30 days all you can eat for free. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.